Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 53 of the North Meets South web podcast. Very nice. Nicely done. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. It is 11.20 on a Sunday night. Moved our recording time a little bit because Michael, you know, he's got a social life or something. I don't know. He's got friends, <laughs> I guess. You've got kids. You're yeah. not supposed to be able to have friends. It's just kids and family. family birth- uh, it was a family birthday. Yeah, it was a family birthday. Okay. So it's the only it is reason we had to move things around. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what's been going on in your life, man? Um, Fighting with... Server issues, scaling issues, servers catching on fire because of scaling issues. Oh, geez. We're, uh, we're getting there. We've, we've engaged with uh, our parent company's IT, so things will move. They're in the process at the moment of just like auditing our existing infrastructure and figuring out what they need. So, we're just a matter of pinpointing exactly what it is that we need to move first and, and what we can sort of hold off a little bit. So, once we move some infrastructure onto that new platform then we'll be able to repurpose some of the old hardware some of the storage can move across and it should give us a bit more runway to to get everything migrated across so looking forward to that you guys managing all your own servers in-house still yeah still on centos yeah it's still on centos okay um i mean they pretty much let us choose whatever we want but for standardization it makes sense to have centos yeah sure which is always fun one of our we've got a like a short-lived project we're providing free public wi-fi at uh, an event that we're sponsoring in a few weeks and one of the guys was setting up the the environment for that and he kept on running into permission issues with his application i said are you running on centos yes i said is se linux enabled what's se linux all right <laughs> so <laughs> It, it, it was SE Linux. It's always SE Linux on CentOS. So you've got to... I mean, most people just turn it off, which is... Educate the, me. What is SE Linux? I don't know. I don't know what this is. Um, so SE Linux is like a security module that provides some extra like access control to okay. your operating system. So where typically you would say, um, like, for example, on a Forge server, Nginx and uh, FPM run as the Forge user... And it has permission to write to your home directory. All of your websites are served out of that Forge user's home directory. On a CentOS server, the the user permissions are not necessarily enough. So if you were to say, put a site into slash var slash www slash forge.com, Apache or Nginx wouldn't have permission to write to that directory necessarily, even if the folder was owned by that Forge user. Sure. You would have to tell SE Linux, hey, you also need to allow Apache to uh, or Nginx to write in this directory. So um, it provides you a bit of sandboxing, I suppose, at the at the kernel level in in CentOS to you know make sure that things don't go poking around your file system. It's above my pay grade. That's why I do Forge <laughs> yeah. everything. Like we have some guys here. I'm like, hey, could you spin me up a new VM and just put like a fresh install of like whatever yeah. Ubuntu on it? And like, sure. I was like. Can I get that yep. IP address? Sure. Hey Forge, go do all your magic, and then it does. Yeah, and that's then exactly I just right. Do yeah, it. And it's, yeah. 
Yeah, it's nice to be able to do that. Um, I mean, all of our stuff, all of our internal applications run on internal IPs and things like that. So Ours even too. if we wanted to use Ubuntu, yeah, yeah, it's, it's too much of a of a rigmarole to get things, you know, holes punched in firewalls and things like that. So it is what it is. We yeah. are going to move to self-hosted GitLab soon, which would be nice because then we can set up GitLab runners locally. Okay. And then we can have deploy pipelines. So gotcha. we can, I don't think we would go to the extent of fully automating the process. So we wouldn't go if the build passes on master, then deploy it. But we would certainly have a pipeline that we could click a button when we're ready and just like build all of our static assets, deploy and all that kind of stuff. So we've now sort of standardized all of our applications to use the the Envoy style, Capistrano style, you know, deploy to a directory and sim yeah. it across. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually been really good. I know, I'm pretty sure we spoke previously about how doing a deploy would take forever and restarting FPM would cause like 30 seconds of interruption yeah, so no we fun. couldn't really do anything during the day yeah so now that we're doing the the envoy style deploys we can you know simlink a new directory and, and reload it and it, it typically loads within like a second or two which is what you would expect for a a fresh load if you're you know hitting up opcache and and storing all of your stuff in there so it's it's getting better we did actually cause redis to go away the other day which Uh-oh. was fun <laughs> so like we had just to do completely some went away tuning on that yeah, it just stopped responding. So, so do you have to do... Um, so like in that case, right? So you, do you want to have like a high availability Redis server where there's like a master, like a, you know, a master and a slave or like, or is that a way overkill? It kind of seems like it, right? I mean... Yeah. Yeah, we did. Really I don't tough. think we needed it. Yeah, we didn't need a second server or anything like that. It was just a matter of actually tuning Redis a little bit. And Redis was really good in telling us what we needed to do. So it was actually writing into its log file like, hey, this value is set too low for what you're trying to do and you should disable this thing to increase performance across tcp so across the network yeah and uh seems to have been okay since then um we have we have now tipped over two million records or wow. two, two million jobs every 18 hours so wow that's it's awesome. a nice little rolling average that we've got yeah. so yeah it's it's ticking along nicely and horizon's managing all of that yeah um, thank god it's a memory did, huh? yeah, yeah 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 so I did actually reconfigure in in Horizon. You can tell it to... So it's got the load balancing. So sure. if you have multiple queues that a supervisor is managing, you can say, let's have 20 workers. And if you use the default configuration, it'll just like space out like five on one, five on one and five or, you know, if there's 15. So it'll, it'll evenly space them out. If you change that configuration to auto... If you've got 20 workers and one queue suddenly has, as in our instance, like 2,000 jobs in it, Horizon will will start moving those yeah, workers across. Load balance them, or not load balance them, but... Yeah. So you have 18 workers on that one queue that's really busy right, and it'll leave right. two, you know, one worker on each of the other two queues. Even, even like 18 queue workers wasn't enough for some of the loads we were getting. So I've actually configured that to be an ENV variable so that if nice. I need to, on a whim like have 60 workers for that supervisor i can just like update the env variable update the config cache and then um yeah horizon will pick that up and and start going about its business and and like churns through that queue pretty quickly so just a matter of keeping an eye on that until we can sort out the infrastructure woes that's nice yeah horizon is such a huge win it's awesome um 
man, I remember it feels like I had, I used to have to invent something every time I ran into it. Like I remember before I even understood what queues were, I was looking at some of our old code and it was like, we re, we invented queues and queue workers, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and now I'm just, it's so nice to have Horizon. I have had some weird stuff with Horizon. I feel like with, I think it's like if I have multiple, multiple apps, both all like all writing to the same Redis store, mm-hmm. um, I think one time maybe crazy I crazy things start happening. Yeah, right? Okay. So it's not just me then. All right. So I think yeah. you have like a prefix that gets set for each of them, right? You say like, "Hey, prefix all my jobs with this so that it doesn't collide with something else." But even with that, it felt like something crazy was going on and I couldn't really yeah, figure out. Yeah, it's not enough. Yeah, it's not enough. So we had like three applications all using the same Redis server, and two of the three had like we just left the default configuration in there, so they both had a queue called default. And it, it's like it prefixes it, but the queue names still have to be unique. So we just prefix the queue names themselves with the application. So we've got like CRM-processing, CRM-emails, and that seems to have fixed it. Okay, so that's the trick then. All right, so you have to have unique queue names. So if they just if you just push to the queue default, then it doesn't work. You have to have a prefix and you also have to have the queue name be unique yeah okay that's helpful to know because that i was always really intimidated to be like oh man i know that crazy thing happened that one time i don't know why but i was like didn't trust myself to do it again you know what i mean yeah so like as a result i've been using sites that basically have their own redis like on that on that server you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and i'm only gonna be using it for that one but anytime i'm like gonna be mixing like more than one i'm like yeah i won't i'm just not going to and so um yeah so anyway but that's good to know. That's helpful. Yeah, so Thank you for we that ended hot up, tip. Yeah. We we ended up with like three different supervisors and I think nine or ten different queues split across them. So yeah, definitely having unique queue names is when, when we stop seeing issues. So it seems like you'd want that anyway too, right? You know, you you definitely yeah. want that. Yeah, so we don't use default for anything. Everything's like named for the application and and what it's actually doing so do you just like do you just have the in the um queue config you just have the the queue named in there like you don't actually like on every job that you push you don't actually change the name of it in the code you just in the env that's set for it uh we have chosen so each job we call the on queue method inside the jobs constructor okay yeah so that way we don't have to specify like every time we call that method because some of our queue jobs we call from three or four different places, which is probably not standard, but there are a couple of different places. Like we've even got different applications that we'll send jobs in. For example, say if you were to purchase a data block, so if you ran out of, of allowance on a, on a given month and you your internet connection got shaped, so we slow your speed down. If you were to log into your members area, which is a separate application, you'd buy a data block that would then dispatch a job with no handle method that na- that is named exactly the same as the job on the CRM application, which does have the handle method. So we're actually dispatching between applications oh, via the same Redis server to to handle that kind of stuff. So that seems kind of crazy. That that is an artifact of the way that we used to do things. But yeah, it just means that like our public facing servers don't have like that processing logic on there, mm-hmm. and we've centralized it all anyway. So. Um, yeah, I mean it works well. Yeah, I get I get what you're for, saying for us. So. I get what you're saying. Yeah. There's uh, have you ever heard of Kafka? I've heard, I think I've heard the name, but tell me more about Kafka. It. Apache Kafka. Kafka. Uh-huh. Kafka. Kafka. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Apache Kafka used for real-time data pipelines. 
basically it's it's kind of this idea of like a central spot where everything's getting everything's pushing their events to it and mm-hmm. it persists it and then anything that wants it like it's a pub sub implementation almost right, right. so anything wants it, it can go look at that and it kind of has something to do with like event sourcing as well. So you have like one place where all the events are streaming in and being stored, right? And then any job, mm-hmm. any anything that wants to can go talk to Kafka and say, hey, have you had anything happen since the last time I checked? And if you have and I'm interested in it, let me see it. Give it, give it to me, right? And then I think it keeps track of, I'm not sure if that application itself keeps track of which ones it's consumed or how that works, but that's interesting. It's kind of like, you know, it kind of sounds similar to the, that's that sort of deal that you're talking about. Okay, so my second question for you is this. So since you're naming all of the jobs, the queues that they're being dispatched on, do you have to have in Horizon, do you have to specify queue workers for each one of those queue names? Or can you just have like a worker running that's like default that will pick up anything? Or does that cause problems as well? So we've got three supervisors. So mm-hmm. one's called processing, one's called long running, and one's uh, one, like we just put all like the miscellaneous stuff that we need jobs for but they're not they're not high traffic and things like that um so like if we want to send an invoice that goes onto one job because we don't send invoices like we send invoices once a day whereas data accounting has its own supervisor with its own queues because that's happening like every five minutes thousands of jobs so i right, break it down for me here so you've got mm-hmm. you're talking about supervisors you're talking about queues and we're talking about named okay so you've got at the top level you've got well let's let me think which way is the best way to start out it sorry i was gonna say let's break it down from the the top okay okay so in your in your horizon configuration yep you've got an environments array and that's where you can specify you know production local testing whatever and within each environment array you can specify a supervisor right so the supervisor is the the top level process that sits there and it figures out um, how many process should I run? Should I be moving? You know, should I be balancing the workers? Should I just like the things that you see running if you do a horizon status? Yep. yep. So we've got within our production gotcha. environment, we have uh, we have a processing supervisor, okay. an email supervisor, okay. and a long running supervisor. Okay, three supervisors. So gotcha. the long running one is just there because we can say we want all of the jobs in this queue. Like they could take five minutes to run because we're doing reports and things like that. Email is just any generic emails that we send from our CRM and any invoicing. And that's only got like a handful of workers uh, or a handful of processes and that goes about its own business. And then our main one, which is our processing one, which handles, you know, data accounting um, and any other processing. So if we're doing shaping, we'll send a job onto that processing queue as well. So that, that seems to be working pretty well. The email and long running queues, as I said, they're kind of, don't get used that often. We only send email invoices once a day because we, you know, we'll generate all the invoices at the start of the day, and it's not usual that we would be generating arbitrary invoices throughout the day. It's all you know, recurring subscription stuff for the most part. So sure. And then, so you have your three supervisors, and then each one of them will specify which queue jobs they handle, mm-hmm. or which yep. not so jobs, on the, but basically because each which each queue job, they listen to. yeah, each job pushes onto a specific queue. So the supervisor config yep. will tell it, hey, here's the three different queue channels that I want you to listen for and process yeah, jobs. That's on. correct. Right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, for example, our processing supervisor listens to three queues: the the general processing queue, which is where we just throw you know whatever needs to be processed. Our SMS one, for some reason, we should probably move that out of there. That that probably was before we started doing data accounting. And then our main one, which is data accounting. Gotcha. Okay. 
That makes sense. And so your reasoning for having them split up into three supervisors is what? Mostly because like data accounting is is high volume. It's happening all the time. So think of it as separating like having a high and a low queue. That's all it really is. So we're saying like the processing one, which does data accounting is going to be busy a lot of the time, but they're processes that, you know, they can hold each other up or those jobs can hold each other up, but they shouldn't hold other things up. Yeah. So if we want to send an invoice to a customer or we want to SMS a customer, typically that's for like a close to real-time communication. Email, not so much, but like when we send an SMS, it could be because we're sending them some token or we want to notify them that, hey, you're, you've got an overdue invoice or whatever. So we don't want those to be delayed yeah. by the thousands of jobs in the processing queue. That makes total sense. Perfect. Thank so you. think of it like yeah, I got you. the the in. I mean, you wouldn't think of it in a traditional sense, but think of the email as our like high urgency queue. Right. We want that's and so that's why we put that in its own queue because there's less jobs in there, which means they'll get processed quicker when you say than if queue, they were waiting in the processing. What you mean is own supervisor. Uh, own supervisor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it is confusing, right? There's just like the terminology, like it's, you know, it's supervisor queue job, but like when we're talking about it, everything is like queue, like queue channel. It's pretty, yeah. I mean, that's what it yep. sounds like when yeah, we yeah, say yeah. queue, yeah, but, exactly. but I get what you're saying. I got you. Okay, perfect. That's super helpful for me to, to talk through because those that, that exact scenario you're, you're talking about would happen to me and has happened to me before where it's like, okay, we have jobs. So like in the, in the morning, I have these jobs that run to rebuild these documents, these legal documents in case anything new came in and they take like half the day right? But mm-hmm. I also have ones that are emails that have to go out pretty quickly. And I've had it happen where, you know, those jobs will get those, those build legal docs jobs will get delayed for some reason. And then all of a sudden people are like, uh, my email's not working. It's like, oh, okay, let yeah. me go look. And then you've got all these law, you know, these emails that are like stuck way behind. Yeah. So that's good. That's a good point. Awesome. Hey, um, I tweeted this out the other day, yesterday, I think. Um, it's, WebSockets D, I think it's called WebSockets D. I did see that, and I and I I I gave a, a like a little fist bump to myself that we would start talking about something that wasn't state machines. <laughs> oh come on, dude! I'm still hyped on the state machine train. <laughs> I'm telling you, bro, it's so fun. It's so fun. I just had no. I just so we, I just uh, the developer, my other developer. So we were just. Um, working through some stuff the other day. And you know, it's like when you find one of those new tools, you go overboard, completely overboard, and then you kind of come back to center. And then, you know, he's in the overboard stage right now. So he just, (laughs) he just went like wild nutso on this, like one input form. It was great. Like it was pretty cool to see. And because I think really at the end of the day, like a lot of the times you don't know how far is too far until you've done enough experimenting to figure it out. Right. Like you've got to understand what's going on first. So no hate on him. Like he was, I mean, he was definitely just using it to its full potential. It was pretty cool. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that I, uh, J Mac was talking on the Lara chat podcast the other week and he's in a position where he does like he runs laravel shift but as part of that he's also got these human services where he goes and he will like step through with a business and and do so he he was saying that you can see the the progression and the consistency between different code bases in that position where you know you look at an application and he's looking at applications that are around the 4.2 laravel 4.2 stage where everything was repositories. And so there was lots of repositories there or there's lots of command bus there. So 
you can you can see that kind of stuff where people yeah. as you know and and Laravel as a community you know we we do that we go through those phases and those ebbs and flows of different things that we all get excited about yeah so one of the cool things that you can do with this is you can have parallel state machines okay so you can have like one state machine that's like i know i'm bringing it back you have one state machine that has like here here's the listed like states that you can have and then you can have another one that's running at the same time that has here's the listed states and both of them are listening for particular events so like you can say um this input state machine over here, like when you focus, like when you receive focus, you're going to go to a focused state. And then you can say down here, like the overall machine, like the machine that's controlling if everything is disabled or if everything's enabled, when it hears the focus event, it will change itself from disabled to initialized, right? So the, you have multiple state machines listening for the same events and they can react differently. So there's like parallel state machines. There's nested state machines. Um, anyway, yeah, it's cool. Nice. It's cool. But uh, yeah, WebSockets the Unix way. So WebSocket D. So, you know, in the past, it's been Pusher. Uh, it's been, what was the other one? There was another one that was kind of like... Uh, Is it Iron? Was it Iron? iron? Was it Iron? That's like Qs. No, iron that was, was Iron Qs. Qs. Yeah, yeah. I think it was mostly Pusher, right? Mostly Pusher it for WebSockets. Yeah, Pusher was the popular one. And because of its like generous free tier. Yeah, yeah. And so... That's it's really nice. Pusher is a great platform. We use it. We pay for it. I paid them a whole bunch of money last year to handle a bunch of load for me for like a week. Uh, so they're they're great. <laughs> but um, you know, recently Marcel and uh, Freight came out with that PHP package that allows mm -hmm. you to run your own little WebSocket server locally on your own machine without having to go out to Pusher and all that stuff. Right? Just hey, start it up on your server, and it'll handle all your WebSocket connections. But this is even basically like more native, right? So Web, WebSocket uh, D is the WebSocket daemon. So it takes care of handling WebSocket connections, launching your programs to handle the WebSockets and passing messages between programs in the web browser. So it looks pretty cool. So all you have to do to install it is, um, let's see, does it say? Darn it, I don't think it says, but I think it's like apt-get WebSocket D. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that's what it is. And then you just start WebSocket D. So you say WebSocket D dash dash port 8080, name it, and then... There you go. I mean, you can you connect to it uh, in a in you know in your JavaScript, and then it just handles it handles everything for you. It's pretty insane. So is this like a drop in? Can you use um, what's the Laravel thing that Echo? we have? Echo. Echo. So you can you just use Echo to connect to that, and you can use Laravel to just broadcast things to this. I have don't try to. I don't, don't know? know exactly, and the reason I don't know is because I know that uh, Echo is is written a lot. I think it's like kind of it's it's not written so it'll only talk with pusher, but it's pretty much mm -hmm. you know what I mean. It's written so yeah, it's, okay. it's very nice and neat and easy to tie into pusher. So I haven't changed. Mm -hmm. I haven't checked this out. I was just reading on Hacker News the other day, and this came up. I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. So it's like a you know no <laughs> crazy configuration, just app get websocket D, and then you can start it and install it, and it's got some it's got um, examples and. Java, Python, Ruby, PHP, Perl, C, C, Sharp, Swift, Dart, anything like Bash. You can run it from just whatever. So it looks interesting. It looks interesting. And nice. I'll, I haven't, like I said, I haven't invested really much time in it other than I saw it online and I was like, oh my gosh, this looks cool. And then I tweeted it and that was where I last looked at it. And that was so it. That was it. That was it. Fair yeah, enough. it was, it was yeah, uh, late at night and, uh, you know, I think it was the beginning of the weekend. I was like, I'm not going to play with this, but I'm sure we'll probably yeah. sometime soon. So it's nice. really neat though. Yeah. Hey, last, last week you wanted to talk about telescope and we just, well, last episode you wanted to talk about telescope and we just totally ran out of time. Yeah. Yeah. Let's um, do that before we run out of time again. So you, you're using telescope right now, 
right? In production? Uh, we have it installed, but we don't really look at it. So Yeah, I used a beta version. I used the beta version before it was like 1.0. And mm-hmm. I installed it and used it locally. I was like, oh, this is cool. And then I pushed it into production and everything broke. I was like, what the heck? And so there was something, I don't remember exactly what it was. There was something going on that was causing some issues. It was had to do with like sessions or something and it was corrupting sessions. And so I had to yank it out, yank it out of production. Yeah, right. And, um, and I haven't really messed with it a whole lot since. It was like when it first came out, like very, very first came out. I was like, oh yeah, I'm just going to try this out. And I haven't used it since. Um, but yeah, not to say it's not an amazing, excellent tool. I think it's very, very cool. It gives you some really interesting insights into your applications. But um, you would probably know more about that than I would since you're actually using it. So um, <laughs> what's your experience, Ben? Yeah, um, it's nice. We have run into a couple of issues uh, where we're trying to put more content like some of our stack traces apparently are really really big so when it tries to put a stack trace into telescope because something didn't work we end up blowing up our application because we get an exception at the database level because we've tried to put too much in there so it truncates yes, yeah. and, um it's rare we are we are using sqlite for our telescope database which is probably the not traditional route just so it doesn't have to be added onto your main database yeah sure basically that was that was what we did um, I think you could we could probably spin up another like database connection that's specific specifically for telescope sure. and, and tell it you know use MySQL, but I, I may actually get rid of it from production because I, I never look at it and this because we're using Sentry and it handles all of the like yeah, exception tracking stuff, stuff. Yeah. it's good if you if you're actually going to want to monitor a user like you can go in there and say follow app user one and then you can see you know, when they do something and capture those things, but it doesn't like, it doesn't really log in production unless you tell it to. So I and, and that's good. You don't want it to be logging everything right, right. In, in a development environment. You're probably got to open all the time. You're probably already always looking at it. So all of the messages that are coming through, are, you know, you don't have heaps and heaps and heaps of them. Whereas in production, like things are happening all the time. You've got dozens and hundreds and thousands of users that's going to, fill up very quickly yeah uh which is which is why it only logs very basic stuff unless you tell it to you know follow a user and and then i've i've had issues with it like not um you know not logging the queries even if i tell it to to log, watch the user so and i haven't really had much time to play in great detail with it but uh it's good one one of my other developers after we put telescope into development we took out debug bar and he then put debug bar back and I got to be honest. I kind of prefer debug bar because it's always there and it's yeah. obvious. Whereas telescope, you've got to have a separate window open. So yeah, that makes it sense. depends on how you like debugging, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a debug bar fan. Have been, and it's probably one of those things where it's just like I've just always used this. You know, um, it's probably one of those deals. I know that telescopes has telescope has a ton of great features. Um, it's just that I think. It would probably be useful in production in the case that I'm troubleshooting like something for a specific user. Yeah. But I don't know. Like, I don't know. So, yeah, I'm kind of on the fence about it. I, I, I haven't found like a super, super compelling reason for me to use it yet. So I'm probably not going to invest the time in it. Um, but maybe, maybe in the future at some point, mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're saying like uh, you haven't really had a ton of, ton of time to invest in it. And like, I feel like that's really... You know that's true. Like it's uh, mm. 
I mean, it's just like at the end of the day, you got work to do, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd love to just yeah. be able to like sit and screw around with all these new things. But at this point, like the Laravel community is so big and yeah. there are so many things happening. It is hard enough to like keep up with all the top level main things that are going on, much less try all the libraries and packages that like you star and retweet because it's like, oh, this looks super interesting. I definitely want to try this. And you just never get mm-hmm. back to it, right? You just never have the time. No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and oh. it's, it's nice if you can, if you're in a position where you can do that, because yeah. there's so much great stuff to look at, but for a day to day when, you know, you have your job and you know what your goals are and you know what your tasks are, there's just not a lot of time. And, you know, you said it and I'm, I'm, I'm exactly the same at the end of the day, there could be a new piece of technology that we can use that might actually be better than a piece of technology that we're already using, but we're already using it. And it works well enough and there are other problems to be solved that just mean, you know, we don't have time to look at that kind of stuff. And I'd love to be able to sit down and, you know, use a Friday or a half a Friday to to go through some new things and try out some new things. I mean, that's how we ended up coming up with a, a solution for one of our problems that involves spinning up our own Elastic Search server. But for the, you know... That was solving a critical problem that we had as opposed to, you know, let's just try this out and see if it improves anything kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there was two things I wanted to talk about. One of them, which is kind of like along the same path, which seems very interesting and it's very like top of, uh, it's like still in very active development and kind of cool, new, new, shiny is Livewire. Caleb Porzio, Livewire. Mm. Have you seen these demos? I have seen those demos. I I sat down and watched the the videos and there must be some magic there's some magic going on somewhere there's yeah, some right. piece I, of context that i'm missing the, i can't wait to see what yeah. that looks like what the open source looks like yeah mm. so there's some piece of magic there all of these classes in the video you know caleb does a good good job of showing like what's happening and what you can do with these things but he's just just extend this live view class and there's i guess some required reading around what phoenix live view is and things like that and some context that i just don't have so it'd be cool to see what he does especially now that he's uh left titan and he's you know taking a sabbatical and see what he what he does because i'm sure he'll do some cool stuff hey can you can you give me a quick one minute recap of that so i didn't i saw the announcement on twitter i didn't i didn't listen to the most recent episode i've been i've been reading an audio or listening to an audiobook recently and haven't gotten around to some of those podcasts so the tldr is that caleb has left titan and he just he wants to go off and and try his own thing for a bit and so he's taking six weeks off just he's i think he's driving around you know on holiday with his wife and uh then he's gonna figure out what he's gonna do from now i don't think i'm pretty sure he said he didn't really have any fixed plan but it was just getting to the point where he wanted to get closer to like you know when you work for someone and if they make a dollar you make you know 10 cents on yeah sure or whatever you know you know what the ratio is always in the favor of the business it's not like you're not earning 90 cents to every dollar that your, your business earns there's you know other employees and and you know overheads and things like that so you know it'd be interesting to see what he what he ends up doing but uh yeah so he's left titan and as a result they're not they're still doing their podcast they're just not calling it 20% time anymore because it's not 20% time sure yeah um i think i think i'm pretty sure they've settled on the name no no plans to merge that's a good one which is uh yeah it is it's uh it's a play on on taylor in uh prs 
when he closes them and says no plans to merge. <laughs> yeah. Well, best of luck to Caleb. Caleb's a killer developer. I'm excited to see what this what this will mean for him. I'm good for him. And you know, yeah. I know he's a huge like Mr. Money Mustache. I can't remember what the name of the that whole like movement thing is. Like wants to retire by 40 sort of deal. So he's very much like a mm-hmm. financial planner sort of guy. So, you know, he's definitely got his his ducks in a row as far as, um, you know, he's probably got, I don't know, heck dude's probably got like a year worth of savings of expenses, probably more. Um, so yeah, anyway, good for him. I'm glad that he's, he's able to kind of jump out there and and kind of try his own stuff for a little while. That's, that's exciting. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it does look really interesting. So it's kind of this idea of, um, in case you haven't been able to see it, you know, Caleb has kind of been on this bandwagon of like embrace the back end for the last year and Mr. Like anti Ajax, whatever, right? Like stop Ajaxing your stuff in, just provide it all from the server side, render as much as you can from the server and, and, you know, sprinkle in JavaScript when you really, really need it or, or basically provide all your data from the back end and, you know, and don't have to make Ajax calls out and, and whatever. Right. So, I mean, that's a really slaughtered version of what he's kind of been working with, but <laughs> uh, trying to use Laravel as much as possible. And it kind of reminded me of like stimulus, right? So um, mm-hmm. you talk about like DHH and he's like, you know, I just really enjoy Ruby and I want to write Ruby as much as I can. And if I can find something that gets out of my way and lets me write more Ruby, that's what I'm going to use. Right. So that's like the whole idea between turbo links and stimulus. It's like, you know, use as much of the, framework that you really love to use as much as you can. Right. So, and he's, so Caleb's like, you know, I like writing PHP. I like writing Laravel. That's what I enjoy writing. So like, if I can do some of these same things in PHP and in Laravel, I'm going to try and do that. So he's kind of taking the idea of components um, in view and moved them into PHP classes. And so the kind of the, the interesting idea around it, right. Is that he has these protected or maybe they're public. I don't remember what, whatever they are, these properties that are on these classes and you kind of inject this class into your view and say, Hey, this is a live wire class component. And you kind of get a copy of that, of that class attached to your session. It almost feels like, right. Mm. So it's not even being persisted to a database. It's just like you have a copy in memory that it's mutating. So like you have this counter that starts with a protected property of like count equals one. And then when you press the increment button, it does some WebSocket magic connection to the back end, increments that property by one, and then returns the rendered view to your front end. And there you go. So now like basically like in memory, you've got this process that's running, that's got your stored value of that class, not persisted anywhere other than just in memory, I'm guessing, right? So that's sort of the trick and why I think he was saying it's kind of, it's it could crash right at, at volume or at scale i guess yeah. um, because yeah. if that's your if that's your situation now i mean i could think of a couple different ways around it like if you were using some sort of individualized cache like if you were actually just storing it in their session maybe that's what he's doing maybe he is storing it in their session instead of like keeping a value kind of running you know what i'm saying instead of keeping it in memory maybe yeah. he's maybe he's writing it to a session yeah. or maybe he's writing it to redis right and then basically he yeah. rehydrates all those classes on on you know connection i'm not sure I'm not sure. Yeah, but well, it, one of one of the, I mean, the counter, not so much, but he, when he did the a to do list example, that that all went into the database. So correct. Um, and and you know that's typically how you would persist it. But uh, yeah, as as you said, and as he said, it'd be interesting to see how it goes at scale. Daniel Colborn raised some interesting points around like there are things that happen as part of Laravel's bootstrap that may not happen if you're keeping this live view thing running in the background the whole time. So like middleware, for example, may 
Interesting, do weird yeah. and unpredicted things if it's not called on every request because, I mean, that's the way PHP works. It's, you know, you make a request, it's interpreted by the, you know, PHP interpreter and then you get a response and then the process shuts down and then you make another request and even if you make the same request, the whole thing happens again. Right. So, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I'm sure he'll bump on some things. I'm sure he'll figure them out. He's a... He's a smart cookie, so. Yeah, and there are some interesting ways around some of that too, like opcache, right? Obviously, like severely decreases the amount of bootstrap and load time, right? And then there's also another one that I'm trying to remember where I believe it keeps your entire application running in memory and just keeps... Swool. Swool, that's it, yeah. Yeah. Which allows you to handle an insane amount of requests really quickly. Mm. Um, So, you know, like you said, he's a smart guy. He'll figure some stuff out. But uh, it is it is kind of a really interesting, if nothing else, a really interesting thought experiment to figure out, like, how can we do this? How can we yeah. make this happen? Yeah. Um, but it really, at the end of the day, it sort of feels like he's swapping web, web sockets for Ajax, right? I mean, like, that's yeah. that's what's happening, right? Is uh, I suppose it's just a request, right? Ajax is just a request, yeah. too. But I suppose it's... Yep. At the end of the day, you're still making that request, right? I mean, you're yeah. still making you're that making request. You're making the request in some way, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I guess that's how... I mean... The argument isn't so much like don't make a request. Obviously, he's making requests regardless. It's just that the latency that Ajax introduces or what? I don't know. I don't know what that is. I don't know. I'm not sure mm-hmm. what the what the battle's against. But in any case, WebSockets is going to be faster, maybe? Because right? it's, yeah, it's already well, a connected connection. Well, doesn't have to do like yeah, a handshake. It's already connected. That's right. You just like throw data down the pipe and you get some data back. You don't, you know, you lose the, or you gain you gain, you lose the overhead from not having to make the request and, and the hand, TCP handshake and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I've got a couple of things if you don't have anything, but I'm at 12%. So, mm. what do you got? Go go for it. Well, we've got to talk about CTO Sumo at some point, but okay. you've got all of their stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. I think they contacted you, not me. They did. Um, so the one other thing that I'm kind of dealing with right now is we've got this new application that we're building. And so we've kind of gone the SPA route because it is pretty much like an SPA. And I think there's like, I don't even think we need a database for this thing. So it's literally just like talking to some APIs and consuming some APIs, kind of shaping the data and presenting it to the user and really acting as like a connector between like probably two different, two or three different applications, just kind of pulling in data from a couple different places and, and whatever. So kind of when it first started out, it was like some crazy prop passing stuff. And I was like, let's not do that. Let's use Vuex. So <laughs> yeah, we're using Vuex and it was, it was good. Like I said, like, here's a couple of things you can look at. Here's how you handle this. And it was good. And it still is. Uh, but the, the question that I'm running into or the thing I'm kind of running up against is like when you're using Vuex, is there still room for local variables in your components, right? Or like component level data, right? And so mm-hmm. I think for me, like the the temptation I think some people probably have with Vuex is like, oh, just chuck everything in Vuex. Just chuck everything up in there. Like it just should all happen mm-hmm. there. So like every piece of state that you would need should be up in that in that Vuex store. And it's that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm pushing up against right now is because I'm totally not that. Like I'm like, I want all the pieces that are relevant to the component to live in the component. And then I want the pieces that need to be globally available, made globally available. Like if there's an action yeah. that the component can take that's relevant to the component only, like I don't want it in the Vuex store. I only want it in that yeah. component, right? Does that make sense to you too? Yeah. Like, no, no. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. So otherwise I, just, I would do the same thing as well. You're just making these crazy God objects that are just, they hold everything, you know? Yeah. And I haven't, I haven't, 
done a lot of the work myself, but I was poking around some things last week and I'm pretty sure we've got like multiple Vuex stores anyway. Like different parts of the application have their yeah. own Vuex store right. for... And we don't... I don't believe we have like a global, global thing, except, you know, the global, global thing would have our authenticated user in it perhaps. And we've got like a little ticker in the navigation that shows how many calls are in the queue for different, you know, like inbound phone calls. Yeah. So that kind of stuff I can foresee going into a global Vuex store in our application context, but then different seg or different parts of that, you know, different uh, resources, I guess, for lack of better terminology would have their own store. Yeah. Um, and then the components do whatever they need to do with the data that's in the store. So like, for example, if we had a list of of sites that um, we've got equipment at, that could go in the site's global store. But in terms of the individual things, the things that are responsible for creating new ones, for example, they would be responsible for, you know, making that request and then putting that onto the store. Yeah, know, the, right. The new one so has like- been created. Exactly. So like they handle all their own form state, right? It's like, hey, like yeah. you're not going to put all that, all that, you don't put all of those data, you know, variables into the store. You just mm. let the component handle it. Hey, like here's my local state that I need to know about. So like in your data, yeah. you know, return, whatever, you're going to have like form, name, phone number, email, whatever, right? Mm. And it handles all that. And then even if you wanted to do the rest of that, even if you wanted to do the Ajax call and stuff like that in your in your Axios, uh, or not, sorry, not in your Axios, in your <laughs> in your Vuex store with Axios or whatever, right? Even if you wanted to do that, yeah. you could do that at that point, just pass a payload from your component up to, yeah. up to your, your um, store and let it submit the payload. But like the, the Vuex store should be like, I don't care, just pass me whatever you're going to pass me and then I'll yeah. send it along. Like you handle all uh, the validation, yeah. you handle all that crap, like... You know, like Vuex should not have to be looking down all the way into your component and being like, hey, are you valid? Are you valid input? Like your component should be handling all of that detail. And then by the time it gets up to the store, you should know, hey, we're good. We're all set. Just submit the thing and give me back a thumbs up and give me back the response. Yeah. And and that's exactly right. The store is the store. It should be dumb. You know, it should, you should put things in there and take things out of there, but it shouldn't. It doesn't need context. It doesn't need to know, like, how did I get this thing? It's just responsible for having that thing. Yeah. And and that makes sense to me. Yeah, sure. I think so too. Okay. That's helpful. I'm going to, you know, one of the things that's always nice is that there's a lot of examples out there, right? It's just you got to mm-hmm. find the good examples. So the other day I was looking yeah. at, I was trying to explain how, like, I hate returning, like, false or null from something and then catching that in a in a like a handler and then trying to like pass that along and do all that mess where it's like hey we're gonna make a call out to an api and depending on what we get back return a false or return a null or or something and it's like at that point like i just want to like throw an exception you know what i mean i just want to like throw an exception and, and be done with it and like the rest so it's just dumb like that gateway is just dumb it's like like hey i had a problem yeah. here's what the problem was handle it you know yeah. um and so that kind of feels the same way it's like i just want to throw it up there and if there's a problem let me know but like otherwise i'm going to handle the rest of that logic all that granular yeah. detail that belongs in the component and the the exceptions are fine as long as you're not using the exceptions as a bailout like now i don't have to do anything so Talk, tell me what you mean about that. I'm interested. To, I'm interested to hear this because so to you, do exceptions feel like do exceptions feel like you're giving up? Exceptions are a bailout. They're like I don't 
I wasn't expecting this. Like I know, but it's I know that I wasn't expecting this in some cases, and I just don't want to do anything about it. Um, so you know, I do a lot of little well, like things like me, that with like the framework. If the framework framework throws an exception, and I and I'm expecting it to throw that exception, but it's meaningless to me, then I'm catching that exception only as a no op. You know, fine, this happened, I don't care, kind of thing. So I don't want to use an exception as a bailout. I, it depends on what you're doing, like. In some places, instead of throwing an exception, I would just return a null object because then I don't have to, you know, I don't care that it doesn't do anything, but it doesn't blow up my application in the in the way that a, that an exception, an, an uncaught exception would. So in some places I'd go like, give me a client to connect to this server as long as the user is online. Now the consuming code doesn't care or know if the user is online or not. It just goes, here's the user. And the, the factory method that's responsible for giving me a client will do the resolution. And if the, if the client's not online, it just returns a null client, right? And so I can just call whatever the next operation is, like disconnect or shape or whatever on that, on that service. And the null client or the, you know, the null client to connect to that server is responsible for just doing nothing because it's not relevant to the application that they use is not online. So, you know, if you, were, if you were to throw a user not online exception, you then have to catch that. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like, you'd have to do something with that exceptional case that you know is happening. So, I would rather, you know, adopt the the null object pattern to say, you know, I don't care, right? I don't care that that user's not online. Just call the disconnect method. And then if the user's online, the object will be responsible for disconnecting them. And if they're not, then nothing happens. And, or and, if they, you know, or, and then you don't if, have exceptions yeah. in there. Sure. Or if it is like, so if you call the disconnect method for a client that's not online, that's like a null, then you could then you could do something in there, right? So you could return back a message to yeah. say like the client isn't online. Yeah. Or you could log it or, you know, just ignore it because we don't care. In some cases, the user wouldn't be online. Um, so there's no need to disconnect them. So in a, in a suspension scenario, we would add a flag to say that the customer suspended um, for each of their services. And then we would disconnect each of those service sessions. So that they try and authenticate and their internet doesn't work. They go, oh, I should call now. So they call us and say, yeah, you owe us money. So pay your bill. But if they're not online, we need we still need to set the flag. But then, you know, then it means that my code that wants to say, hey, do this disconnection doesn't need to do the logic to determine if that user's online or not. It's just like disconnect this service. Sure. I think that makes sense in some cases. I think it makes sense in some cases. Like in your case where you're going to be doing that, like, so you're saying like, Hey, I need to disconnect all these services. And if they owe us money, go ahead and roll through all these lists of services and disconnect all of them. And you would certainly don't, you know, you don't want to like have to go. It's nice to be able to just consistently say, Hey, grab all these disconnect, 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 disconnect. Instead of saying, is the client online, then disconnect it. Is the client online, then disconnect it. And like you said, you just return a null object and it's a no op, no big deal. Right. In other cases, I feel like I would like to throw an exception because then I can handle it in any specific way I want, right? So I don't have to have the, so let's say you have, you return a null client, right? And they call this, they, they call the disconnect method. And it is actually something you need to notify the user about, right? In this specific case, right? But maybe there's other yeah. cases where you don't need to. Well, now how do you do that? Now you have to do conditional logic where you say like, okay, if the client is a null client and they call the disconnect then I need to do this versus mm-hmm. in this other case, I need to do this. And I think for exceptions for me, like I can throw that exception 
and I can handle it a different way in each particular case, depending on the calling code. So the call, you know, the 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 gateway itself doesn't care at all. It just says like, hey, I'm yeah. gonna throw this except throw this exception. And you can also use like sometimes what's really nice as well is like I'll use the um, Laravel render and report methods uh, for like a mm-hmm. custom exception, so that like I can just literally blow it up in my gateway, and like I know like hey, if if nothing catches this. I just want to report to the user. Just send it, send yeah. over to our error page and send them a, a message that says, "Hey, we couldn't currently, con- you know, we can't currently connect to this service. It, it's down. Uh, call us or try again in a couple minutes." Yeah. And that's what I want to do, fifty percent of the time. And the other two times that it's being called, I actually want to handle it this way over here, right? Yeah. And but then I don't have to return a null object that has conditional logic to say, "Okay, what's calling me." Or conditional logic to say, if I get a null back and I call disconnect, what do I need to do? You know, so it's just contextual, mm-hmm. I suppose. The answer, as always, is it depends. I, it is. But the it null is. object exactly is pretty right, interesting. Yeah. I, it's a pretty interesting one, too. Yeah. The the other one that I've seen, and in that case, I suppose it's not really validation, but something that I saw Taylor tweeting about earlier this week is just like throwing arbitrary things into the validation exception. So you can do like valid. I think it's validator with message or something and it would just blow up as though it's a validation message, which is nice. You could probably get reasonably far with using that depending on what your case... I mean, I'm not... I wouldn't suggest that you would use a validation exception for everything, but in some certain cases, you know, the validation exception would be fine. In in that case that you were saying with the gateway, you know, if the gateway is not available, that's a... That's a server error. That's not a validation thing. And that's where you, I guess, would draw the line between what kind of exception you're throwing back. Yeah. No, I, I totally forgot about that tweet. I need to go back and look at that again. But yeah, that was a good one. Thanks, Taylor. Hey, I'm at 3%, so I'm going to I'm gonna close the show out here. Unless you've got anything else to say because my computer's going to die here. No, go for All it. Right, cool. Thanks, everybody, for listening to episode 53. It's been great hanging out with you for a little bit here. If you like the show, please feel free to rate us up in your podcatcher of choice. Five stars is always appreciated. If you have any questions or comments, hit us up on Twitter at Michael Bennett, at Jacob Dorinda, or at North South Audio. What did I say? What did I say? Michael Bennett and Jacob Dorinda. Hello. Did I say, did I say that? <laughs> yes, you did. Uh, it is after midnight. It is 12 12. Um, <laughs> it is up on Twitter at Michael Dorinda or Jacob Bennett or North South Audio. Uh, Shown us for this episode of North Meets South Audio slash 53. Oh, I'm going to bed. I'm going to bed. Hey, and don't think we forgot. Thanks, Andreas Hubenthal, JP Davey, Joe Lennon from Work Vivo, Rasmus C. Nielsen, Makeable.dk, and to our featured sponsor this episode, CTO Sumo connects your startup with the right interim CEO. They can help jumpstart your project and turn your MVP into a scalable product. They cover things like hiring and mentorship, software architecture, technical project management, and auditing. They've got the fuel to get your business going. If you are ready to take your business to the next level, check them out at ctosumo.com. Thanks to all of our wonderful sponsors. We will see you all in, or speak to you all, or speak at you all in two weeks. Bye.